Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time. Your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways, shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. Looking for hair removal tools that not only deliver smooth results, but also make you feel totally in control? Enter Conair Girlbomb. They're like your secret weapons for smooth, sleek results, made just for us. From the ultimate Girlbomb grip to the professional-grade blades, say goodbye to settling for less. With Conair Girlbomb, you get the precision and power that used to only be exclusive to men's tools. So take your hair removal routine to the next level with Conair Girlbomb, available at Walgreens. Hello, Wilder listeners. This is producer Emily taking over for Glenneth today because we are still prepping for our final episode. Thank you to everyone who's come this far with us, and especially thank you to those who have reached out to share about their relationship with Laura in their life. We're incorporating a bunch of your feedback into our grand finale episode, but while you wait for that, we have a surprise for you. There are so many things we haven't been able to include in this series. Moments from the road, more background on Laura and Rose's lives, and of course, all the fascinating things our guests said in interviews. We wanted to release one of those full interviews, so we present to you our extended Melissa Gilbert interview. If you grew up loving the Little House television show, you know Melissa Gilbert. I know that when Glennis first started talking to me about a podcast about Laura Ingalls Wilder, the first image that popped up in my head was 10-year-old Melissa running down that grassy hill with braids in a floral calico dress. Of course, now we know that Laura is so many things, and no one understands that legacy better than Melissa, who's been shouldering a part of it for the past 50 years. We're so thankful that she was willing to talk to us about what that experience has been like. Our conversation ranged from her time on the TV show with Michael Landon and the rest of the cast, to finding agency as a young actor, to her business, Modern Prairie, to her activism, and even her thoughts on Rose Wilder Lane. We spoke to Melissa over Zoom, where she came to us from her home in the Catskills. By the way, she now lives there in a very picturesque, cozy, homespun, Laura-esque life. It was so great to talk to her. We're so grateful she shared her time with us. We hope you enjoy. Thank you for agreeing to do this. We're so excited that you're here. Thank you for inviting me. I'm thrilled. Nine-year-old me is beyond thrilled, I must tell you. Um, well, first of all, we should have you introduce yourself, Melissa. I'm sure everyone's going to recognize your voice when they listen to this. But, you know, for the purposes of three people who might not know who you are, if you could just <laughs> properly introduce yourself, that would be really wonderful. Uh, hi, I am Melissa Gilbert, and I had the incredible honor of playing Laura Ingalls Wilder, Laura Ingalls first, and then Laura Ingalls Wilder ultimately on Little House on the Prairie, the television series. How did that come to happen? Um, my first TV series I was ever on was Gunsmoke. That's how old I am. Um, I think I was about five or six at that point. And I really just only did little jobs here and there because my, my parents felt that me being school was more important. But Little House on the Prairie came along and it was my mom's favorite book. And I had read 
Little House in the Big Woods and was starting to read Little House in the Prairie at that time. And I was pretty excited. And so the decision was made that I would audition. And I don't know what everyone else was thinking, but I knew there were hundreds of girls auditioning too. So I figured it's never going to happen. And then it just, you know, was the ordinary process. Call back, call back, call back, screen test. And I got the part and the adventure began. And what an adventure it was. It's been, you know, nearly 50 years since we first aired. So it has been 50 years since we shot the pilot. Not a day goes by that I don't think about Little House of the Prairie or mention something to do with Little House of the Prairie or Laura or Rose or the Ingalls relatives or something that has something to do with them. And it's so infused in my in my being at this point. I want to talk about that in a bit because I'm curious what it's like to shoulder that legacy. But just going back to the audition process, did you during that process audition with Michael Landon or any of the other members of the who eventually became the cast? I did. I got to go in and read with Michael uh, early on. Kent McRae, our producer, was there. And Susan Sookman, who later became Susan McRae, was there. And I remember Michael. And the reason I remember Michael Landon, I went to a private school in Los Angeles, the Buckley School. And I had auditioned and screen tested for a little house and didn't know if I'd gotten a part. And I was at school one day in the lunch area and this other girl ran up to me and she said, are you Melissa? And I said, yeah. She said, I'm Leslie Landon and my dad says you're going to be Laura. And nobody knew. My agents hadn't gotten a call yet. My mother didn't know. I ran to the office because you know, there was no cell phones then. I ran to the office and said it was an emergency. I had to call my mom and my mom called my agents and my agents called the network. And Leslie got so grounded. Um, <laughs> So grounded. We're still friends to this day. But when I auditioned, I didn't know who Michael Lennon was. I'd never watched Bonanza. My family was beside themselves. My grandfather, who was, you know, a very famous comedy writer in his own right, sent a note over to Michael and he knew him from writing the Dean Martin roasts. And my grandfather actually typed out my audition scenes for me on his typewriter. And and my mom and my godmother, my grandmother, everybody were, they were all hysterical that I was going to meet this Michael Landon who was supposed to be just the best and the most handsome and so talented. And I didn't know. And I went into the room when I first saw him. And as soon as I met him, I knew exactly why they were all hysterical. He just, he glowed, you know, he just, he had it undeniable. And the first time I heard him laugh, he had the best laugh of any human I've ever been around, aside from my kids and grandkids, who their laughs kill me. But his laugh was just so, this could be it. And then I found out later, too, after the screen test, that when they took the screen test to show it, show it to NBC, to the network, Michael only took mine and basically said, if it's not her, then we can't do it, which is... Wow. I'm glad I didn't know that at the time. That that would have been a lot yeah. for a nine-year-old to to carry, but... Now, looking back, I, it's immensely um, appreciated. Well, speaking of a lot for a nine-year-old to carry, you know, we spoke to Alison Arngrim and Karen Grassley, who both brought up on their own how, how, what an extraordinary presence you were as a nine-year-old. Like, Alison Arngrim talks about meeting you for the first time um, and I think described you as being sort of like a firecracker, but just how in command of yourself and how, I guess, in control you were almost, like that you were a very powerful force and really knew exactly what you wanted and what was expected. Is that, do you remember it like that? I knew what my job was and I rejoiced, I rejoiced then doing it. I love that job. I still love that job. I love to act. I have, you know, now at this point, had and have at least eight other careers. Acting is the one thing that that doesn't necessarily come the easiest, but fits the best and brings me the most satisfaction. And so as a kid, it was just as as maybe commanding and in control as they described me being. I, I felt like I was as full of wonder at the same time. I mean, I just, everything was a marvel to me. The fact that they brought me boots that had buttons and they had to teach me how to use a button hook to button those high button boots. They were legitimately button boots, no hidden zippers. And that to me was like the best game of dress up 
in the world. I mean, I there were real cows and real horses and real chickens and other kids to play with. And um, we were outside, I think, more than we were inside. And there were all these great grownups around who were like a bunch of crazy aunts and uncles. And there were all these wonderful men on the crew who taught me how to ride horses and would throw me in the air and catch me. I mean, it was heaven for a kid. I even loved going to school on the set. You know, I dilly dally. There was, there was, I mean, it was common knowledge with the assistant directors. They'd have to always say, Hey, half pint, go to school. Cause that was like the thing. <laughs> half pint, go to school. And it, it would just trickle down to the whole crew where I'd, you know, be standing again and he'd go, uh, half pint, go to school. And it would, you know, one by one, I'd walk by everyone. But even that part, even the school part was great. I loved my teacher, Mrs. Meneer. I loved being in a classroom with Allison when she was there. She got to go to regular school more than I did, but it was a really fun environment. And then being able to work with all of those extraordinary actors and crew, um, the adults, and to be considered their peer while we were working was an honor, actually. And very, um, I didn't feel burdened by it ever. I felt like it was gifted to me. Like this was a tremendous responsibility, but they were giving me the responsibility because they knew I could do it. And that made me feel really good about myself as an actor. So you felt very supported on the set? Always. I never felt pushed or forced to do anything I didn't want to do. It was a very, as kid-friendly as a set could be, this was the kid-friendliest. We were contained, but we weren't caged, certainly. Yeah, Allison said that one of the things she remembered about Michael was people ask her that he respected her as a as a worker. You know, like he respected, there was a lot of respect that you towards the child actors that, that they were getting paid and they were here to do a job as opposed to hand-holding, I guess, was the sense I got. It was the same with anyone. As long as we did our job, because we were not, a, we, our crew, loved, blessedly, because they've been together so long, since some since High Chaparral and then uh, Bonanza and then Little House, um, they worked really, really fast. There wasn't any time for delays. So as long as we were professional, adults and children alike, and knew our lines, our jobs, what we had to do, and everything went smoothly, that was great. But if someone came in and didn't know or was unprofessional in any way, it wouldn't last very long and they'd be gone. And it didn't matter if they were a kid or an adult. There was just no time for unprofessionalism. When you say the crew called you half pint, that just sort of stood out to me. Was there, because you're so young, was there sort of like... um like a bleeding over of your character into your sort of idea of yourself and your relationship with Michael and the relationship Laura has with Pa? Was was that ever sort of confusing or? Um, it was never confusing. It was always really clear. I mean, I had my my own father who I adored, but my father passed away when I was 11. So two years into the series, I was nurturing this relationship on camera with Michael when my father died. And our families were all really close. My parents were divorced and my mother was remarried, but my mom and my stepdad and Michael and his wife, Lynn, and their kids and um, and our family, we all vacationed together. We went to Hawaii on spring break together. We had New Year's Eves together. We slept over at each other's houses. So our relationship transcended just work. We were, we were tight. And Michael, I, I always looked at him as a father figure and a mentor, but never was I confused between which one was my daddy and which one was, and I call him my pa, and, mm-hmm. and he is. I mean, that's my pa. Um, and my dad is my dad. And my birth father is my birth father. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm able to keep straight. I'm adopted, so I have all these relationships that I'm very well able to keep straight. I know exactly who's who. And oddly enough, for all of these wonderful men that have come in and out of my life, most of them have passed away. They're all still sort of there and in me. And um, an inspiration in so many ways, Michael especially. You wrote in your book about him directing you and sort of getting you into the emotion. There was so much crying. There was so much crying on that show. Well, I we- mean, from him as much as any <laughs> as much as anyone else. I'm just curious, like looking. I have no sense, but like 
the sort of the sense of maybe emotional, I don't know if manipulation is too strong a word, but how how he would get you or any other of the kid actors sort of into the place to access that emotion? Or as a kid, do you have access to it more easily? For me, I mean, I think I've always been a bit of an empath, even as a kid. So accessing that kind of emotion was never difficult for me. But it is, I mean, on a week-by-week basis, shooting a show like Little House on the Prairie, there's always uh, someone crying, crying or running, or running and crying at the same time, which I seem to do in every episode, crying and running and running and crying. And there were times where it was those those emotions were hard to tap into. And when those times would happen, Michael could kind of sense it if he was there. And there were many, many times where one that comes into mind, especially where, you know, I was having a hard time and just not quite in it. And he kind of cut everything and stopped everything and said, come here, take a walk with me and walk me away from the set. And by the time we got about, I don't know, 20 feet away, he knelt down in front of me and he had tears streaming down his face. And he looked at me and he said, do you have any idea how much I love you? And I started crying. He said, okay, you ready? Can we go do the scene now? Now, yeah, it was definitely manipulative. But was it in a bad way? I don't know about that. I, I, I think that he knew what I needed to get where I needed to go to do my job that day. And I didn't walk away from it feeling weird or bad or and in hindsight, as a as a highly therapized adult, looking back on that, I don't think, you know, there were things that we did on Little House that I look back on and go, well, that was maybe weird or odd or I, I should not have been put in that uncomfortable position. But this was not one of those times. This is actually, as an adult, I wish I had directors like that around when I'm, you know, having a hard time getting into something. Sometimes you need a little boost. Allison talked about feeling that her character allowed her a safe space to express anger. And just you talking about losing your father when you were 11, if it was a sort of safe space to express complicated grief. Oh, 100%. We were not 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 great at grief at home. I grew up in a family where those sort of feelings, sadness and anger are considered bad. And so we don't do that. And so um, crying is... is it, back then was considered like a bad thing to do. Don't let the kids cry and they shouldn't cry and they shouldn't. So we didn't talk about it. We didn't really share feelings. Not like we do now. And certainly not like I did with my kids. A perfect example is when my my youngest son's pet mouse died and I insisted that we have an actual funeral for the mouse and the kids didn't even want it. But I wanted them to have a moment to greet the mouse. I I compensated for, uh, clearly, for stuff that I was missing. But I did have that outlet on the set. And that was, that was a wonderful thing. Now, the other kind of odd thing was after my father died, the, the family edict of not discussing it carried through to the work. The adults were told not to discuss it with me, probably because it would have made it hard for me to do my job, which would have delayed and cost a lot of, you know, this is a business. And I don't remember anyone being particularly overly solicitous or extra nice or anything. It was just sort of regular. But there were a, a couple extra hugs here and there during those months and during that time. And and if I look back now, I can I remember the girl was kind of looking at me and clocking me and making sure that I was okay. What when you say some of the situations you feel like maybe you shouldn't have been put in, I know you wrote about Dean Butler being cast, you know, as Almanzo. It I have to say, in in doing the podcast, it made me rethink those episodes where you get married because you even the character was quite young, and I was young when I was watching it, so I thought sixteen was very old. But even as a grown up, I'd never actually thought. I, it was in that interview with him. I think I thought, "You're right." I mean, so young and young for you to be put in a position with a grown man. What do you think about that now, looking back? Well, I can tell you from the lens of today, you can't do that. You, there's no way they could shoot it. There's no way they would cast it that way. And there was certainly no way it would be handled the way it was handled. Not with, you know, now we have intimacy coordinators and we have all this dialogue around being comfortable and feeling safe, which is amazing. Nobody talked to me about it. It was just, it was. Nobody said, are you uncomfortable? Are you okay? Is this all right? It was just... I remember being told that the Almanzo episodes were coming. Correct pronunciation, by the way, is Almanzo. 
Anyway, so I remember being told Almanzo was coming. And my assumption was, you know, because Laura and Almanzo were not far apart in age in real life, not massively. So my assumption was there'd be someone coming who was close in age to me, maybe one of my contemporaries. And then when they told me that it was Dean and they showed me a picture and then he came to the set, I I was taken aback because I my, my first thought was, that's a man. I mean, I can't even tell you what a girl I was. I mean, I was a gidget. I was a tomboy. I was 14, 15 years old, knock-kneed, buck-tooth, still had braces on, wasn't allowed to shave my things. Here comes this guy who shaves his face and <laughs> drives a car. I hadn't been on a date. I hadn't kissed a boy. Fortunately, we had a little run-up to the actual marriage and stuff, but by the time we got to the Sweet 16 episode and the first kiss and all of that, it was, you know, I knew Dean and I liked Dean and I got along with Dean, but I still felt like I was out of my element, to put it mildly. And yet I powered through and I did it. But looking back in hindsight, if I were producing or directing or the parent, it would have been a completely different situation for my kid. Again, it's a reflection of the times and where we were. And, you know, you watch it now and it doesn't look weird, (laughs) even to me. And I'm watching it going, oh, God, I was so uncomfortable that day. But, you know, it didn't bother me at all. I'm climbing into bed with this grown-up man and I still hadn't been on a date yet and we're having babies and I died I think at that point I had kissed a boy wow that's wild I mean I think thinking back to how I watched it with it wasn't just that I wasn't questioning it I don't recall anyone questioning it at the time no or even when I in reruns all through my teen like there was no there was no any anyone saying well maybe think about this. It's almost like Laura went from, she hit puberty and then she was married. There was very little, (laughs) like, and there was very little, you know, difference between, it's almost like they didn't know what to do with you once. I think that's true. I think that, you know, you know, there comes a time where you got to contribute to the family. And the only way to do that at that time is to either be a teacher or get married or both because there were no other opportunities for women. So that it is a reflection of the actual time. But I, I would defy anyone. I don't care who it is. I don't care if it's Tom Hanks or Steven Spielberg to go to a studio or a network and say, we're going to do a show where the 15-year-old marries the 26-year-old. The 15-year-old in real life, not even like a 22-year-old who can fast for 15. Exactly. Exactly. Um, But now, yeah, no, 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 no. I, I just don't, you can't do it now. And again, like I said, though, when you watch it, even today, it doesn't look odd and it certainly didn't appear awkward for either of us, but it was very awkward for me and uncomfortable. And I did do things like in scripts that would come down the pike that said, you know, and they kiss, I would go sneaking in and say, can we change it to hug, please? But I had to advocate for myself because the adults were not having the conversation with me. And But you were listened to to some extent. I was. I was definitely listened to. I could feel myself getting like, getting shy and embarrassed again. Like I did then. I did. I I did a lot of blushing. I mean, it's extraordinary. I, I think, too, what we're hitting on is like in some of those episodes that dealt with women, it felt the show, f- even at the time, felt a little aggressive. And then some episodes that dealt with race or even the amount of uh, black people who were cast in the show felt very ahead of its time. The episode with Solomon, you know, frequently I see it come across, you know, social media what do you hear about the most? Um, that, that, especially after COVID, you know, when everyone was kind of going back to Little House and they were watching Quarantine and Plague and all of those episodes that we did. That summer of 2020, when the country was going through, or the country, the world was going through that massive social upheaval and unrest all around George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and all of the horrible injustices that were going on, the wisdom of Solomon came up a lot. And I was hearing on Twitter from people like Jamie Foxx and, and Viola Davis, who knew Little House on the Prairie was so woke. And I'm sitting and I'm going, I did, I did, I knew. Because I had to do that scene where I had to try and wipe the black off of Todd Bridges' face. And I hated, I asked not to do it. I said to Michael, I, I can't do that. That's horrible. Who does that? And he said, yeah, but we're trying to show people how wrong it is to be ignorant and how open Laura is to learning something new. 
And I said, okay, well, then I'll do it. But you're, I mean, I had to say you're a real Negro person and try and wipe the black off of his face. It was absurd to me. But once it was explained that this is what we were doing and the lessons we were teaching, that was impactful to me because I realized that our show was more than just Laura's story. It was the story of our time at that time. Remember, this was the 70s. And the country was going through a, a great deal of civil unrest, the civil rights movement, the ERA. We were, it was post-Vietnam. We did an episode about um, the soldier's return, Richard Mulligan playing the Civil War veteran coming home addicted to morphine while all of these veterans were coming back from Vietnam addicted to heroin. It was very timely and topical. The, the episodes we did dealing with anti-Semitism and nativism and the rights of Native Americans. I mean, these are themes that keep coming back and coming back and coming back. And we even touched on women's rights and chauvinism and the mistreatment of women at the same time while marginalizing women to do nothing but pour coffee sometimes for many episodes at a time. One of the most staunch feminists I know was Karen Grassley, who was one of the great coffee pourers of all time. But then every once in a while, they'd give her an episode where she put her foot down and say, well, and remind Pa that she is his partner and not just his property. But again, we're reflecting the 1800s when women had zero rights and a reflection of the 1970s where women had maybe a half a point of rights, but still, you know, certainly not where we are today and not where we need to be. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. Hey guys, Mario Lopez here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. 
And with available features like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back, enjoy the wide open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit biotoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Welcome back to our conversation with Melissa Gilbert. There were so many points we couldn't get to in our already lengthy episode on the television series. And something that we only slightly touched on were the complications of Michael Landon as a person. If you're a Little House diehard, you might know that Karen Grassley, who played Caroline Ingalls on the show, came out with a memoir a few years back that detailed a bitter contract dispute between her and Michael over her salary. And she also opened up about the general misogyny on the Little House set in the 70s and 80s. Unsure of how those dynamics might have affected the kids on set, we asked Melissa what she thought of all this now. Were you aware as a kid? I know just from talking to other cast members that the kids shot during the day and then some of the grown-up scenes were shot sort of after the kids went home. But were you ever aware of the tension that Karen Grassley wrote about in her book between her and Michael and sort of the contract dispute? I wasn't aware of the contract dispute. I was aware of the misogynistic humor, by and large. Not just Michael, it was the entire, all the men on the crew. Um, and I heard the jokes. And they were some of them were, were horrible um, and completely inappropriate. And, you know, it, it's, those sets are tend to be very ribald, uh, bawdy places anyway. But the anti-woman, or the demeaning of women, I should say, jokes, didn't impact me because I sort of didn't, some of them I didn't actually understand either. But like some of them were, were pretty raunchy and I could see Karen stiffen and bristle and eye roll and walk away. And I knew that that was inappropriate and was making her feel bad and, and or angry. And I knew that that was wrong. Um, I didn't, I was a kid, wasn't gonna, I'm not going to get in the middle of the adults. I didn't get in the middle of my parents arguing. So I wasn't about to get in the middle of my mom and pa. Either it's not my place. In hindsight, I think she, you know. I read her book; it's 100% her experience, um, and it is a legitimate experience. I actually had lunch. Oh gosh, a while back with Jen Landon, and she, it was right when Karen's book came out. And she said to me, "I don't understand what all the hoopla is with all the Michael Landon supporters who are mad at Karen for telling the truth." She said, "I totally imagined my dad was a misogynist back then." That's just the way it was. He was that guy. Doesn't mean that he's evil. It was just he was a reflection of his times. I mean, one of one of the things I think about often is what sort of television would Michael Landon be making now after the last few years? And I don't think it would be anything he would be functioning the way he did then. And I think he'd be telling stories that are timely and important and topical. I think he'd be appalled at what's going on in the world today in many, many ways, or at least I hope. But based on what I know of that man, he would have grown with the times. You can see evidence of that in some of the episodes and also touched by an angel. I mean, in certain ways, he was so progressive, so much crying. It was so He cried so much <laughs> all the time. And I think that is progressive for, uh, he was also, you know, shirtless, oiled up with perfect hair. And I think the collision of those two things is... <laughs> A, a, a contradiction. <laughs> yes, I think so too. But he was a contradiction as well. This was a man who who espoused family values and community values and was married three times and had children with three different women and was deeply flawed and human. But who isn't? Doesn't mean he's a, a bad person. It just means he's a human person. And he tried to tell stories that he felt were important and impactful. That's all you can ask from a filmmaker. What are the episodes you hear about the most? I hear about The Lord is My Shepherd a lot. Um, it's my favorite, too. And it's very hard for me to watch. Sometimes it's even hard for me to talk about. In fact, I can sort of feel like a lump in my throat now. I hear about uh, Bunny and the Race. People really dig the wheelchair push down the hill. That's the only time my mother walked into the family room and said, Laura seems mean. And I was like... Laura's amazing. And my mother said, I don't, I don't think that was a nice thing to do. And then exited the room. <laughs> <laughs> well, Laura was pushed to the brink 
And I'll tell you, um, Allison got her revenge. Um, many years ago, I had to go in for a colonoscopy and um, she took me. And when it was over, they wouldn't let me walk out of the uh, surgery center. I had to go out of a wheelchair and she pushed it. And she kept threatening to shove me down a number of different hills that day. Even though I didn't, I said, I, you know, it's not my fault. I didn't write it. <laughs> Tell them to let me do that. The other thing I hear about a lot too is the mud fight. People like a lot when Allison and I uh, got physical. Yeah. I mean, I actually hear that from a lot of fans. And I think, I mean, and there's one sort of appeal to that, but I think it was having girls express sort of like complicated emotions to each other and that jealousy and competition, which felt very recognizable at that age. I think the other thing that 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 informed those performances and, and maybe the audience was getting it subliminally was that we really loved each other dearly. And I've always said, you know, you don't really have to necessarily get along all that well with someone you're doing a love scene with, but boy, you have to love and trust the person you're doing a fight scene with. That's amazing. I'm curious now, sort of, um, I just want to talk a bit about your, you know, after Little House career, the, it feels like the professionalism of that set set you up well because then you became, you know, president of SAG. You ran for office. Are, the, are there direct connections between coming off that experience that moved you into sort of other positions of power? There was a step in the middle that happened, actually. Um, when I was 14, my mother took me to meet with a, a manager, a man named Ray Katz, Raymond Katz. He established my production company then when I was 14, Half Pint Productions, and asked what stories I wanted to tell and what characters I wanted to play. And my mom and I had talked about it before we went in, and we talked about doing The Miracle Worker and me playing Helen Keller. And that started while we were doing Little House. So I was actually producing and starring in my own films before Little House ended. So we did The Miracle Worker, Diary of Frank Splinter in the Grass, and then Little House ended and we continued working. So I I learned how to produce at that time too. And also remember, I, I wasn't just there working and playing. I was also on the Little House set watching Michael and Kent and watching the crew and learning everybody's jobs, which was something Michael wanted me to do. I knew what the Greensmen did. I knew what the craft service people did. I knew what the Wranglers did. I knew what I knew what everyone's job was. So I had a respect for that sort of team. And when we went to do our own productions, we actually just took the Little House crew with us. We had that same uh, fantastic land and work ethic in the Half Pipe Productions as well. And so as I got older, I got more and more involved. And eventually, many, many years later, ran and got elected as the president of Screen Actors Guild. And while I was there, I got elected to the executive council of the AFL-CIO and the California Film Commission. And so I really got involved in in the political realm. And that just seemed a natural progression many, many years later. When I was asked to run for office, I thought, well, yeah, like, I think I can do this. I mean, it's supposed to be by the people for the people, right? So I'm the people. Why not? Do you think about doing it again? No, I don't. Um, I think I was rescued. I think my neck, which decided to give out and I needed to have a third massive spinal surgery, I had to drop out of the race. That was 2016. And it was kind of a, uh, that would have been a really difficult year to, a couple of years to serve and uh, travel back and forth, obviously with my neck, but also with the political climate just worsening and worsening and worsening. I think that I was saved from having to deal with a lot more emotional turmoil than I do from a distance. Does not mean I'm not completely involved. I'm on the Democratic Committee up here. I'm very involved in the issues that I'm passionate about. And I think I can do a lot more work on the ground. I would rather be on the ground in a protest than in a chamber making those kinds of decisions and trying to pass laws in a system that's clearly broken and is not getting anywhere. No matter what we do, the pendulum swings, the pendulum swings, the pendulum swings. And it just, it's too frustrating. I feel like I can do much more from here. What has it been like for you to shoulder the legacy of Laura? I was thinking of sort of like Anne of Green Gables and Megan Fellows, that Anna Green Gables is a fictional character, but you, like Laura Ingalls Wilder making the decision at age 65 to sit down and write her life story has 
it impacted your life in such enormous ways, it's hard to grasp. Like, what is it like to shoulder all of that? Really, I mean, I, it sounds so trite to say this, but it is what it is. It's what I've been given, and it is a gift. I do feel very honored to have been chosen, and and I do feel very blessed that this is my life because of it. Um, I feel a certain responsibility to the stories, to the legacy of Laura and um, the Ingalls family and Rose and everyone around her. It's interesting. My husband and I were talking about this sort of subject recently because the the first three characters, really, that I played of import in my life are Laura Ingalls Wilder, Helen Keller, and Anne Frank. Not only are those tremendous acting opportunities, but all three of those women or people have monstrous legacies. I mean, unbelievable import um, to the world and not just to America, but to the world. And so I think if I, if I get too caught up in, in shouldering the responsibility of that, I'll feel very, very weighted down. Um, I felt a lot more responsibility to, um, to behave like a nice young lady in public when, you know, when I really just kind of wanted to be a, a bit of a wild child myself in my late teens and early 20s. I remember actually when I was a kid, I got one letter. I, I wasn't allowed to read my fan mail, which is a good thing. There was one letter that I got a hold of when I was about 15 that had been hidden from me. I think it came when I was about 12. It was from a, a little girl who wrote and said, um, I wish I could be more like you because my dad said he would hit me less if I was. And I'm really glad I didn't see that till I was older. But still, that's like, that's a lot for a kid. So they were right to keep that from me. That's a lot for anyone. That'd be a lot for you right now. These are the things that women will come up to me and cry and say, you know, my my childhood was miserable. I was molested by an uncle and Little House on the Prairie was my escape. And I, I, and I, I love that and I appreciate it and I am there for it. But I can only do so much of that. And then I'm just depleted. You know, it's like being a therapist a little bit. Wow. It was a big show. It was a really, it's an honor. It's a treasured responsibility is the the best way to put it. And I hope it continues in so many different ways too. I would love to continue telling the stories, living these stories, bringing these stories to life. We'll see, you know. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other. As Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infinity QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. 
You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. What up, everyone? It's Lunchbox from the Bobby Bone Show, and I'm here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car, like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive. You can count on your new Camry to get you anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. From our last episode, you know that Melissa Gilbert has most recently carried on Laura's legacy with her lifestyle brand, Modern Prairie. Our producer and co-host Joe Piazza stepped in to ask Melissa how it came to be. Yeah, I mean, I I love it, by the way. I love everything on the site. I want it all. I want to decorate my cabin with Modern Prairie. <laughs> but... I want to hear a little bit about how it came to be. How did this become a business? Um, I have had this sort of little hatchling of an idea for a couple decades that there's something more to do with just the entire sort of prairie ethos. There was, it, it all for me starts with, um, of all objects, the Butterbell. And if you don't know what a butterbell is, a butter keeper is, I actually have one I'm looking at right now. It's a ceramic holder for butter. You put the butter in it and you put it in the crock and you put it upside down in water and it keeps your butter fresh and soft without having to refrigerate it. And they've been around for eons. People look at them and go, oh my God, that's so cool. And I always thought, let's create something around a butterbell and go from there and take us back to these sweet, simple things which really are the best things after all, right? Just full on Laura Ingalls Wilder celebration. But how do we do this? And so I had conversations with the branding department at my agency and put together decks of ideas of things that these could be. And it kind of came and went, came and went, but it was always in the back of my mind. And two years ago on my birthday, uh, I had friends over up here, my friends Johnny and Roswell, who were the first friends we made up here. And I was talking about this idea for this retail line kind of lifestyle-y little house. I don't know. And I said, I, I want to do this. And I showed them the deck and they went, and Johnny said, I know this woman, Nicole Hazy, who has a company who's looking for something like this. Let me connect you two. Well, Nicole and I got along like a house of fire, like instantaneously. And we had a few conversations about what it could be. And she came back to me with her version of it, which was a bajillion times better than my deck. And we signed papers and said, let's go. And it really started out as, um, yes, a retail line, sort of, but there's more to it than that. It, it's a place for obviously women over a certain age, the mature women like me. And it's not just about buying things. It's, it's now grown into a community and. What's fascinating to me, you know, we have all these workshops and everything from, you know, how to paint with watercolor to how to deal with grief during the holidays to how to get unstuck, which is a big thing with women over a certain age. You know, our kids are gone. We're reassessing what we want to do with this last third of our lives. Do we want to stay in the business we're in? Do we want to follow our passion? Do we want to travel? Are we are we alone? Are we caring for aging parents? Are we, you know, all of these things that we're dealing with at this part in our lives, there's no space for a community for people to talk about these things. So we started this sort of, we created this space with these workshops and 
in the beginning, you know, we have these very deep emotional workshops. Now it's reached a point where they're talking to each other and supporting each other through transitions, through changes, through they're becoming a community. And that's kind of the heart of Prairie for me is the community aspect. There's nothing more reassuring than knowing that you're not the only one who's experiencing whatever it is, whether it's emotional, physical, psychological, doesn't matter. To know that there are people who've gone through it ahead of you and that there are people coming up behind you who will follow in your footsteps and come to you for that advice. That's what community is. And we support each other and we it's about love. And that's, again, it goes back to Laurie Ingalls Wilder and the Ingalls family and the sweet, simple things really are. Those are the real things. Compassion, tolerance, understanding, and love. So that's the basis of Modern Prairie. And now it's just grown into this, this thing. What do you think it is about this kind of prairie aesthetic, this simplicity, this back to basics that is so cozy for people? Is it nostalgia? Is it... Is it just aesthetics? It's just nice to look at. I mean, it's modern prairie. It's the nap dresses. There is a whole cottage core thing happening. Why do people love it so much? Because it is cozy, I think. I think we all really rediscovered cozy during lockdown, too. I mean, I defy anyone to tell me that they were doing Zooms without pajama bottoms or sweatpants. I mean, we, we were dressing from the waist up for whatever it was. And I think, you know, there's there's value in that when you can't get toilet paper, suddenly everything else kind of falls away, right? I mean, manicures are irrelevant. Eyelash extensions are irrelevant. Going to the movies is not important. What's really important is being able to have contact with your loved ones, making sure they're safe and comfortable, and being comfortable yourself. Look, when that happened, everybody was baking bread, so much so that nobody could get flour. That says something. Bread is the ultimate comfort food, right? And it's the least expensive. It's been around for eons. So bread is like the grounding, hearty, cozy food. And we went, all went back to that. So I think Modern Prairie is a space to remind people of um, that cozy, basic, homey, warm, those nostalgic feelings brought up to the current times, hence the modern. There's also a beautiful comparison to be made. Modern Prairie is this community for mature women who are looking at the next part of their life and thinking, what does this look like? And it was very similar for Laura. She wanted something different in that last half of her life. She was writing these books as a mature woman of a certain age. And I think there's a really interesting parallel there. Did you think about that when you were launching? That's something that is kind of a universal experience for, for all women. I think you guys will find as you age to where I am now, there's a, it's not a midlife crisis. It's a sort of a, not even midlife. I mean, who lives to be a 116? Um, in my case, it's a midlife reassessment, right? Am I doing what brings me joy? Am I doing what makes me feel like I'm contributing the most? Am I, am, am I forcing myself to do something I don't want to do? Laura definitely did that. It also grew, I think, for her based on historical research and my research. It grew out of a place of necessity, too, because the crash in the teens, 20s, wiped out the entire family's finances. And Laura had the book. She had been writing it. And necessity put them in a position where she had to then actually make them sellable, which is why they became children's books or young adult books. So it, it was a combination of things. But I think it really, maybe not so intentionally, Laura, Laura probably blazed a trail into how to go through that kind of transition from, you know, farm wife with a true partnership with her husband, which was also very unusual for that time. I mean, they were, they did not do anything without consulting one another, nor did they tell each other what to do, which I thought was fascinating. They they had a really modern relationship, Lauren Almanzo, Almanzo actually. <laughs> if anything, she was the one in charge, I think. 
Yes, I think so too. And I think we should make the book people happy and call him by his real name. (laughs) Well, it's interesting to me, Melissa, when you say so much of Modern Prairie is prettiness, because just when you said that, so much of Little House is prettiness, right? Like throughout all of the struggles she writes about, there's a focus on pleasing things, right? The pleasing, how Pa scallops the paper on the shelves and the sprigs of flowers and the buttons. Like there's a real focus on the details of prettiness throughout these horrible events. So that's an interesting sort of crossover that I hadn't, that made me rethink sort of certain descriptions in the book. Those may be the things that we focus on when things are hard. You know, let's look to that. And then again, if you go back to the books, the way she wrote about food, food was like a religion, you know, um, and and glorious. I mean, I remember reading those books when I was eight, nine years old and being hungry and my mouth watering as I'm turning these pages and reading about, you know, maple candy in the snow, and which I've I made this year for the first time. Oh, how did it go? It was fascinating. It's taffy. It doesn't get I thought it would get like crunchy. But it's taffy. It, it 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 hardens into like a almost like like a caramely, like a maple caramel. It's good. You have to do it with butter, though. It has to be butter and maple syrup. Would you ever? I don't know. You I must you must have visited some of the Laura houses over the years. Is there any potential of Modern Prairie moving into these locations, or or what was that experience like of going to the houses, like? funny that you bring that up because it hadn't even occurred to me to take uh modern prairie i mean we're not brick and mortar of any kind yet so and and you know there there may be a world where we collaborate with a specific museum to create something for them through one of our makers by the way all of the people who make our products are women just saying that's part of it we're supporting female businesses also that that's actually a really important aspect of this um i have visited them all it has taken me a very long time. When I did the Little House musical, um, when I played Ma, when I played Caroline, um, we if we were playing a city that was within two, three hours of a homestead, the whole company would get in a bus and we would all go. And so that was my first chance to see Desmet and Plum Creek and Walnut Grove. I did, we were nowhere near Mansfield, so I didn't get to go. We went to Mansfield my husband and I went last year. We were doing a number of cross-country drives. And um, year before last, actually, I take that back. And um, I decided to go when they, we, when they were closed for the day. So we went in, uh, just the two of us, and they opened the museum and the houses for us. And that property, not just because it's the most recent one in my memory, but that property more than any of them is, uh, especially because that's where they're buried, and that's where Rose is buried. That place really got me because you could really, that was their place. And, you know, the, the, the counters in the kitchen that he custom built because she was so tiny was just enchanting. And it felt incredibly special being there. And we were actually going to camp, um, in the campground across the way. And there was a tornado warning. And so we decided to drive to, we drove to St. Louis in this insane storm. And it was very, um, I kept saying to, to Tim, my husband, can you imagine doing this in a wagon? I mean, we're in the cars blowing all over the highway and there's hail and, you know, tornadoes, God knows where. It was pitch black, but just crazy weather. And um, all I could think was, what those crossings must have been like for the Ingalls family from South Dakota to Missouri to Florida to San Francisco to visit Rose. And there's a toughness, I think, that that uh, also to that beauty that we have to tap into as well. That that was the thing, too, is, is you know, I think one of the things that came out of the pandemic and the, the resurgence of or reappreciation of little houses or a reminder that if we can make it through that, we can make it through this. Everyone at all the houses loves you, by the way, just to pass on a little, were your ears burning? Your name was obviously came up frequently in a very um, genuine and loving way. Oh, that's... No, everyone had such nice things to say about you. Oh, well, that's good. That's, that must have been, yeah. I was in a good mood on those days. <laughs> I... <laughs> It would be terrible if you said to me, we went to all those places and they just don't like you. You were so rude. 
<laughs> no, it came up. It came no. up without us asking. It was I wasn't actually inquiring or anything. It just came up out of. And you know, when you're out there, everybody there is very down to earth and genuine. So, um, yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. There's no pretense. There's no. They just love the entire Ingalls experience. The family and Laura and they are they. They are the keepers of the legacy. I mean, I look at those guys and I feel like a little bit of a poser, you know, they, they're in it. They're touching her belongings on, on a daily basis, which I, I actually, when we were on tour with the musical, there was one, I, which place we went to, maybe it was to Smet, and they took me into a vault uh, and they opened a drawer and pulled out one of her nightgowns and let me touch it. And I just lost it. I just, I had to step away because I was afraid I would get tears on the nightgown and that would be bad. Um, it, um, so that's that, I think that kind of in a nutshell goes back to your question about how I feel about carrying this sort of mantle. I touch her nightgown and I cry. So obviously there's a lot of weight there. Yeah. We heard the fiddle being played and that felt. Oh, please. I had Michael's fiddle for years, which I finally auctioned off one of the fiddles, um, there was a prop and I could barely contain myself. I'd open the case just to smell it. Do you have thoughts on Rose? I mean, we asked everyone what, because of course the, you know, the conspiracy, did she write the books, but also Rose herself is a lot. But what are your thoughts on Rose? Do you have any? I think that, that based on all of the reading I've done and the research I've done, I think that Rose is to Laura what Laura was to Moth. This is a, like a generational evolution of rebellion that is passed on. And I think that as as much as Laura sort of gave her mother fits in her wildness, Rose took it so much further. And it, 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 some of it was by choice and some of it was just in her. I think from what I understand, you know, at that point in her life, Laura in Mansfield had gone from being basically a washerwoman doing other people's laundry to a very important member of society and a leader of the society and had reached this really interesting place in her life for the wild child she was to be someone who was so concerned about what other people thought of her because she was so wildly uncomfortable uh, with her daughter coming home with a woman. Her pants-wearing, smoking, divorced daughter who um really was living her life as her completely authentic self and coming into this world where everything was very rigid and very you know where Caroline had sort of that religious church-going fear of outsiders Laura just didn't want anyone to know she projected this image of who she was, and I don't think Rose fit into that. However, their their relationship was so symbiotic. You know, their finances were entwined. They were so enmeshed. I think that they had, you know, a very complicated mother-daughter relationship, which we can all relate to. Um, if anybody could, could or possibly unravel the complications of any mother-daughter relationship for me, I will give them a medal. It just, it is what it is. That's why God blessed me with four sons. I do absolutely believe that Rose helped craft the books. I don't think she wrote them. I think she crafted them. I think she, yeah, I mean, if you read Pioneer Girl, it's incredibly unwieldy. And I don't think it would have sold back then. I think that the editors were right. They needed to find a market. I mean, people weren't spending money, so it had to be something special. And of course, making it something for children was was entirely appropriate. And I think Rose really helped to do that and to take these things apart and put them back together. A hundred percent. I think she was an absolute ghost editor. I don't think she was a ghost writer. I think many of us owe a lot to Laura and Rose for being the trailblazers that they were. What they did for female authors and what they did for for women in general by telling that their sides of those stories and that history is major. Um, I don't know if we would have had a woman's voice back then. You know, if we would have been able to look back on a woman's voice, it had it not been for them. Melissa, we're so grateful. Thank you. Ah, thanks, you guys. I so appreciate it. This was fun. Isn't Melissa amazing? We had such a great time talking to her. It fulfilled a few childhood dreams in that room. We hope you enjoyed this 
If there's other guests we've talked to throughout the show that you'd want to hear an extended interview from, then tell us. Maybe we'll release more of these in the future. This episode was produced by me, Emily Marinoff, as well as Mary Dew and Sheena Ozaki. Sound design and mixing was done by Amanda Rose Smith. Our wonderful theme and additional music was composed by Elise McCoy. We are executive produced by Glennis McNichol, Joe Piazza, Nikki Tor, and Ali Perry. Thank you, as always, to CDM Studios for recording this conversation. This is the conversation that first paired us with our guardian angel engineer, Kathleen. We love you, Kathleen. If you haven't been following us on social media, can you even call yourself a Wilder fan? Get on there, people. Follow us on Instagram at Wilder underscore podcast and on TikTok at Wilder podcast. Thank you for listening. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all new 2025 Infinity QX 80 live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. An epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at AmericanExpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's. Because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable.